for too long. Very pretty song. All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Revelation chapter 22. And I'd like to call your attention once again this evening to this description of heaven that the Apostle John gives us here in chapters 21 and 22. And as we've uh, stated many times as we're looking through this, that this is the Bible's most comprehensive uh, view of heaven. And that's what we find here in these two chapters in Revelation. And as we've studied John's words, I've attempted to give you a little bit further explanation of um, these different descriptions that John has given. And, uh, but to give you the fullness of it, to really explain to you what heaven is, that's an impossible task. I mean, the glorious beauty of heaven is just too far above anything that we can think of. And it's also, it was also too far above the apostle John. He, was, he wrote what the Holy Spirit allowed him to write. And the problem with what John tells us about heaven is that human understanding is not adequate. Uh, what we can write with a, with a pen and ink is not adequate to tell us what heaven is really like. And whenever I think about this, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul when he wrote about heaven in the second chapter of Corinthians. Now, I want to read a little bit of that. If you turn your Bible, just keep your finger there in, in Revelation 22 for just a minute and back up there to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is where Paul had a vision of heaven. And he said that he didn't know if he was actually there in his body or if this was an out-of-body experience. But he was caught up into the third heaven. And that's the same as saying that he went to the place where God lives. And another name for that would be paradise. So Paul was caught up into paradise and he heard words that he couldn't repeat. And he understood those words, but they were too sacred so that he couldn't repeat them. And one of the amazing uh, facts of this account is that Paul did not speak a word about what he heard, and neither did he say anything at all about what he saw in heaven. He doesn't even mention what he saw. Now, the reason that Paul withheld that information is interesting, I think. And so if you'll look at the beginning of verse number 1 in Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said, "...it is not expedient for me doubtless to glory." Now, there's your first hint as to the reason that Paul did not say anything. He said, it's not expedient for me to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth, such an one caught up to the third heaven. Now, that is simply Paul speaking in the third person, describing himself. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which seemeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now Paul's reason for not saying a word about anything he saw in heaven or heard in heaven, was the possibility that more attention would be drawn to him than would be to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he did not want to be exalted himself. He wanted Christ to be exalted. So he didn't want the focus of attention to be turned to him. And so in order to avoid that temptation and the self-exaltation, God gave him an infirmity to show him where all the glory should go. And I think about that, uh, Paul's reasoning, and I think about the many books that have come out on the market in the last several years where uh, people, uh, these are even on some of them on bestseller lists, where people have claimed that they have died and then gone to heaven. And they saw things in heaven and they came back and they wanted to talk about all these wonderful sights that they saw. And so these people are ones who said that they have died and then they've been revived from that clinical deadness and came back to life. And their first inclination is to tell somebody about it. They just feel they have to tell someone. And I wonder, what is the motivation for something like that? Well, I think it's usually to write a book. Uh, That's their main motivation. I think they mask it sometimes by claiming that they really want to give people hope. They want people to know that there really is a place called heaven, and here's a place that you're going to go when you die if you believe in Christ. Now, I, I, I think that if people don't believe what the Bible says, and if they can't get enough hope and encouragement out of what God himself has said, then any encouragement that they would get from people from, who claim to do something like this would be a false encouragement. I mean, who could give you more hope than God? And yet that's the excuse that's often used. They just really want people to know there is a place called heaven. And I don't want to get too far off track here, but I I wonder about that story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the rich man died and he went to hell and he opened up his eyes and there he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he asked Father Abraham, he said, would you please send back Lazarus from the dead so that he can go to my brothers and tell them about this awful place called hell. I don't want them to come here and so they might understand this and they might believe. And Abraham said, well, no, no, they have Moses and the prophets. And if they don't believe them, then they won't believe though one should rise from the dead. And that would be the same as us saying, No, you can't have any other revelation because if you don't believe the inspired word of God, then you're not going to believe some strange supernatural phenomenon that occurs. Jesus even raised people from the dead, and yet people didn't believe in him. He was crucified. So I think about these books that people write, and one in particular comes to my mind, and that's the book 90 Minutes in Heaven. This was about a man who supposedly died in an automobile accident, and for 90 minutes he was declared dead. He was clinically dead, and then he came back to life, so he says. And after that experience, he wrote a book, and his book did become a bestseller. It was a bestseller for many, many weeks. And after he wrote that book, what do you think that he spent his time doing? Well, he spent his time in speaking engagements, going around trying to promote the book. So who do you think received the glory from that. Who received the most glory from a tale like that? Well, I would say it was that man. And I wonder, did he ever have his Apostle Paul moment where he said, I don't want to glory in this, or this is not about me. I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about the Lord. I don't think so. At least I never heard about that. Sometimes people come to me and they say, I've had this question a lot of times because you read these things in the newspaper and, and magazines and so forth, and they'll say, what do you think about that? Can somebody die and go to heaven and then come back to tell about it? Well, there's a fellow that 
attended church here a while back, so it's been a few years now. And when this book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, came out, he brought it to me and he said, I'd like you to read this. I'd like for you to read this. And he was very excited about it. And uh, the author of that book happened to be a Baptist preacher. And so he was very excited about this. Could someone actually die and go to heaven and come back and tell us about it? Now, I would answer the question like this, that if that person is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and if he's written under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and if his writings are recognized as canonical, that is, they're part of the inspired scriptures that we would include in the books of the Bible, then I would say, yes, that would be possible. But there ain't no such animal. Nobody's ever done that before. Nobody ever can. Let me read to you two quotes from that book, and these really ought to be sufficient to debunk what this author of 90 Minutes in Heaven said. This is what the man writes. He says, as I stood before the gate, he's talking about being in heaven, as I stood before the gate, I didn't think of it, but later realized that I didn't hear such songs as the old rugged cross or the nail-scarred hand. None of the hymns that filled the air were about Jesus' sacrifice or death. That's what he wrote. Here's what the Apostle John wrote, Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. That's a song about Jesus' death, isn't it? This man said, I did not see God, although God was there. I never saw any kind of image or luminous glow to indicate his divine presence. Here's what the Apostle John wrote. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And verse 23 of the 21st chapter, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. How in the world could you get to heaven and miss the glory of God? It was, it, John says it was a brilliant light. Here, he, he said there was no luminous glow. This fellow says there was no luminous glow to indicate his divine presence. Then he must not have gone to heaven then because the whole place is lighted with the glory of God, a brilliant light above the brightness of the sun. Now what does that tell us? Well, one thing it tells us is that everything that God wants us to know about heaven and about hell, about salvation and about him is recorded in the 66 books of the Bible. And if we go beyond that, we're going to be in serious trouble. In fact, there's a warning here in verses 18 and 19 about going beyond Scripture. It says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things... God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And so that is a very, very serious warning against contemporary revelation. So if anybody comes and tells you that they've seen heaven, they've seen hell, they've seen angels, they've seen this or seen that, or they have some special revelation from God, then you just point them to scriptures like this. There's a warning both at the end of the New Testament and one at the end of the Old Testament about adding to God's word. 
Well, I think that we do need to return to our immediate concern here, and that's the exposition of the first part of chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles open there, if you look at Revelation 22, verse number 1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now what we've just read is John's description of the inside of the New Jerusalem. Now previously John in the 21st chapter had been dealing with the outside of the city. There he tells us that an angel took him up to a high mountain and from that vantage point he was able to get a view of the city, to get a look at the magnitude of the city. And as John saw it there, he described it as the the New Jerusalem as a city that sparkled like a diamond. It was lighted by the glory of God. Now, that's uh, an interesting part, I think, of these spurious books that are written about heaven. If I I could return to that for just a moment, uh, talking about that book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, there's nothing at all in that about the author being just overwhelmed by the glory of God. But as John writes, he's dazzled by God's glory. That's the most prominent feature. I mean, John wasn't interested in, I don't think, in describing all of these other things. He was fixated on the glory of God. And I think it probably took the angel to prod him a little bit to get him to move on from that and for God to give him these other things because the thing that struck him the most was the glory of God. So the 21st chapter then deals with prominent features of the city. And as I said last week, these first five verses of chapter 22 should have been included with chapter 21. But here the view is on the inside and the focus is about life in the city. Now, the word life is the prominent focus of the first five verses. So we noticed this, that last week, and this is where we spent our time in the last message, we talked about the water of life. Now, it's interesting to me that in the end of the Bible, that here John returns to themes that we find in the beginning of the Bible. And we'll talk about that a little bit further in just a moment. But one of the characteristics of the Garden of Eden was this life-sustaining river that God put in the garden. And that's because water is necessary. It's a necessary element of human life. Now, I think that we may take our water supply in America for granted. I mean, we're blessed by God to have a good water supply. Uh, there's probably not anyone here that in their lifetime they've been without, uh, without water that's very easily accessible. And so it's, it's so easy to us that we can just go to the tap and we can fill up a glass and we can take a, ro- a long, reflect, refreshing uh, drink of water. That is, of course, unless you live in Santa Rosa, and then the water doesn't really taste so good. At least it's hazard-free. I mean, there's no, I don't think there's any germs in it. It won't kill you. Um, we pay a premium price for it. It won't kill you, even though it tastes like it will, but it won't. And, and you contrast that, though, to different places around the world, places where they don't have good water. As you know, our 
missionaries in India and uh, Brother Mwango in Kenya, Brother Ekno in India are busy about doing work where they try to sink wells for the people in order to find good, clean drinking water. And it's because of death and disease. You need that healthy water supply. So good water is of extreme importance. The utility company knows that, and so they make sure we don't take our water for granted, so they charge outrageous prices for it. You know, if you lived in Kentucky, you think about the differences between uh, the cost of water here and there. I think my water bill, I don't know what your guys runs, but in Santa Rosa, my water bill runs something like $125, $130 a month for water. In Kentucky, that would last me about six months. That would be about my water bill for six months. So the utility company lets us know, you are really blessed to have our water, and we're going to prove it to you because we're going to charge you for it like gold. So it costs a lot of money. Well, water is also prominent in heaven. Only the water there is the water of life. It's this sparkling, clear water supply that flows from the throne of God. And that's emblematic of the cleansing of salvation. It comes from Christ. It comes from the Lamb of God who's able to quench the thirst of barren, sinful souls. It's just as Jesus said to the multitudes. He said, come unto me, all you that are thirsty, just come to me and I'll give you the water of life. And so that stream in heaven reminds us of that satisfaction for thirsting souls that that life is found in the healing stream of Jesus Christ, who is the source of water and life. Now, we go on to verse number 2, and there's more emphasis that's put on life, as John describes here the tree of life. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." Now, as that river flows out from the throne of God and makes its way down through the city, on either side of this river, there is a certain type of tree. And the Bible here calls it the tree of life. John sees that as a tree. It looks to him like a tree. It has leaves like a tree. But it's not a tree of an earthly order. This is not a tree that grows in soil. It's not a tree that takes up its nutrients from the soil and brings it up through the, through the trunk of the tree and then it produces its leaves. This is a tree that's of a heavenly order. So it's unlike any tree that we have on the earth. Now some say that what John saw here was not really a tree, but this tree is just a symbol of something. It's emblematic of something else. And I would agree with that, at least in this part, that it certainly is emblematic of something else. But to John, this looked like a tree, and this is why he describes it as a tree. And I think the people in heaven think of it as a tree. It's a tree described with leaves. Now, with this, we're, we're taken back once again to these images that we have in the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, not only was there a river, but do you remember there was also a tree? a tree that was called the tree of life. Now, we're going to talk about that tree for just a moment because Adam was allowed to eat of that tree, and then something happened, and then he was told that he could never eat of it again. In Genesis chapter 2, verse number 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
So there were many trees that were in the Garden of Eden. Uh, every species of tree that we know today grew there. But there are only two of these trees, two types of trees that are specifically mentioned, and that's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I believe that one of those trees, Adam could eat freely of. Adam could eat all that he wanted from this tree, and that was the tree of life. Now, there is some speculation about the tree of life, and it's one of those questions that you get in a Sunday morning forum type of uh, setting, is what was that tree? And did Adam have to eat of that tree to live? Now, I didn't include this in my notes, but I might as well just throw it in while I'm thinking about it right now, and that is that it wasn't an apple tree. We still have apple trees, and you can eat of apple trees. This is some other kind of tree. We have no idea what the fruit tasted like, but it was completely different than anything we know. It was the tree of life. And I think it is likely that that God used this tree to help sustain Adam's life. How much of that he had to eat, I don't know. When he had to eat of it, I don't know. But I do think that it had something to do with maintaining eternal life, and that's because we learn something more about it. Now, we learn about it by the prohibition to eat in the garden. And the prohibition of eating from this tree came about because of the prohibition of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, you might want to follow me along here, so you'll go to Genesis chapter 2 to try to keep up a little bit. And uh, I'm going to go on reading while you're looking for this. But the Bible says this in the 15th verse of Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So Adam could eat of any tree in the garden, and that included the tree of life, but he could not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was prohibited from eating of that tree and that one tree only. But that was the one tree that Adam thought that he couldn't live without. And it actually turned out to be the one tree that Adam couldn't live with. God said, death will come if you eat of this tree. And so Adam, thinking that he had to understand everything that God said, wanted to find out what death was. He wanted to experience death. And he thought that's what would make him like God. Now, that's a fairly interesting scenario, I think. The one thing that God's never experienced is death, and that's the one thing that Adam wanted to do. He, God said, you're going to die if you eat of the tree. So Adam fought to be like God. He had to experience everything that God knows. Well, death represents sin, and God has never experienced sin. Adam hadn't experienced sin either, but he was tempted to disobey, and he thought that by doing his own thing that he could be like God. And that's really the rub in the whole thing. Life is what God is all about. And Adam disobeyed God, and he could no longer have life. Now, God can't be untrue to himself, and so God lives by his own commandments. God never experienced anything like this. God doesn't sin. God doesn't disobey his own commandments, even though those commandments don't put restraint upon God. I mean, God is the one who came first. God gave the commandments, and those are things that flowed out of his holiness and his righteousness, and they couldn't include any kind of disobedience. And that's why when Jesus came, that he had to perfectly obey all of the commandments, and he subjected himself to those commandments as if 
they were the first cause and not God. Now, I hope that all of that really doesn't twist your mind too much, but if it does, you need to dwell on this part, that Adam would live by obedience and die by disobedience. And folks, that scenario has never changed, and it never will change. And because Adam disobeyed God, he was then rejected and thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Then we notice that there's a new prohibition that's put on Adam because of his disobedience, and this is in Genesis 3. Verse 22 says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So Adam was able to eat of the tree, but then when he sinned, that permission was rescinded. Now somehow, that tree of life kept Adam living. Because God said, if Adam eats of that tree, then he'll live forever. Well, why didn't God want Adam to live forever? I mean, if, is it because Adam, what, what's the reason? Is it, would it have been better for Adam to have eaten of that tree? Well, if he had eaten of the tree, then he would have stayed on this earth, and he would have been in a sinful state, and he never could have enjoyed eternal life in heaven, a renewed life in heaven. Now, it was God's intention to save man from this cursed earth, and it was God's intention to destroy it, and he would begin a new heaven and a new earth, and Adam, living forever on this planet, was not a part of God's plan. And so you might think, well, how cruel that is for God to withhold the tree of life. And now Adam has to spend the rest of his days working and sweating and toiling, working in the ground, trying to produce food to stay alive, When God has this tree of life, he could just give it to him, and Adam could live forever. So God's cruel. No, folks, God was very gracious by prohibiting Adam from eating of that tree. Because if he hadn't, then Adam would have spent the entire eternity toiling and sweating and trying to live. So the trade-off is eternal life in heaven with God and a new paradise and a paradise that far outshines the garden on this earth. And as I've said many times before, that we regain paradise through Jesus Christ. And the big difference between what we lost in Adam and what we've regained in Christ is the magnitude of the blessings that God gives. The second Adam from above is far better, far greater than the first Adam who came from this earth. So we've received then immeasurably better blessings through Christ than we received from Adam. What we inherited from Adam was death. And what we inhabit or inherit from Jesus Christ is life. Now, I can't help but mention also Paul's words in Romans chapter 5 on this subject. And I don't have time to go into a full explanation of these verses this evening. But this is what Paul wrote in Romans 5, 12. He says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. In the 17th verse, he says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And so because of the obedience of Christ, the obedience that's given to us in justification, Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us, we are able to regain what Adam lost. So what do we gain? Well, secondly, this is what we gain, permission to eat in heaven. And on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruit every month, and the leaves were for the healing of the nation. Nation. So we regain the right to eat of the tree of life in heaven. Now, there's some have pointed out that as we read this verse, that the Bible doesn't say anything here about eating from the tree. And then you also have the conjecture that whether we actually can eat when we get to heaven or is it necessary for us to eat when we get to heaven. Well, I can tell you this, that in Revelation 2, verse 7, Jesus said, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So Jesus will give us the right to eat of that tree. Permission to eat of the tree of life and live forever is granted by Christ. Now, that's not the same tree that was in the Garden of Eden because the one in heaven is not an earthly tree. It doesn't grow in the soil. It's a tree of like manner, though, and that is that it sustains eternal life. Well, we still have that question, though. Do we have to eat of this tree to have eternal life? Can we skip eating of the tree? We have permission to eat from it, but do we have to? Well, I can't answer that question. It might be that God uses it for that purpose. There's plenty of these trees to go around. There's lots of these trees in heaven. The the trees never die. They're growing their leaves every month. Their fruit comes every month, and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. So I don't know if we'll actually have to eat of that tree when we get to heaven. Now, I do know that the Bible tells us that angels were able to eat. You remember when they came to visit Abraham and Abraham prepared a meal for them and the angels ate? I do know that Jesus ate in his resurrected body. After he arose from the grave, he was able to eat and he did eat. But he didn't have to have food. He could eat, but he didn't have to. So I can't do anything more than just read what the Bible tells us here. But I can tell you this, there are a lot of things about heaven that simply baffle our understanding. There are a lot of things about heaven that just blow our minds apart. We don't really understand heaven. I mean, there's things like, just for example, if the curse in heaven is lifted, then why does anybody need healing? There's no sickness in heaven, no, no diseases there. So why do the leaves of the tree have anything to do with healing? And when you think about questions like that, I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just like Bill Clinton on this with you guys. I feel your pain because I don't understand that either. So how are we going to figure this out? You know, William Hendrickson said, the last part of the verse is problematic. And I would say to William Hendrickson, do you think? Of course this is problematic. I don't understand it. How do, how do you explain this? 
I mean, some people say, well, you explain it because he's not really talking about the effect of the leaves in heaven, that he's talking about what these leaves do for people at the end of the world. Or in other words, he's talking about the millennial period. And so Hendrickson rightly concludes there that the context demands an explanation that fits eternity. This is not about the age of the gospel. So you wonder, well, how does all of that work? Well, why, why do we have things that we can eat there? And then we have another question about this text. I mean, why does it mention here months? It tells us that this tree yields its fruit every month. So why do we have months when there is no time in heaven? How do we explain all of that? Well, I think one of the things that we have to do is to relegate this to the realm of anthropomorphic expressions, that this is the only thing that we can understand. We can't understand anything about heaven unless it's put into human terms. Heaven is God's realm. It's not of this world, and we're not able to think in God's terms. So John did all that he could do. He gives us expressions that we can understand, things that humans understand and things that humans could write. Anything else, we wouldn't have any idea what it was talking about. Now, Paul, as we read a moment ago, he just gave up on it all. And he said, it's just too sacred. I can't write anything about it. He wasn't given permission to write about it. The Holy Spirit said no. And so Paul didn't write down anything about what he saw or heard in heaven. So we just leave all of this to the wonder and the amazement of God, that his ways are too far above our ways. J.A. Seiss wrote about this. The meaning is not that the nations are full of sicknesses and ailments, for these remains of the curse are gone then, though it may be from the virtue of these leaves. The meaning, rather, is the preservation of health and comfort, and not that maladies then exist to remove. So we look at that, understanding what he says about it. We're healed, but we don't need to be healed. We eat, but we may not need to eat. You know, earlier when we were talking about those angels that stand guard at the gates of the New Jerusalem, there's someone that asked me about that. I really don't understand that. Why do you have angels standing at the gates? Well, they're there to protect us from harm. But there is no harm. There's no evil. So how do we figure all of that out? Why does God say these kinds of things? Well, I don't know. We just believe it. God said it. He put it there for his purposes and... So we just believe what God says. And I'll have to tell you this, honestly, folks. I am content with what God has revealed. I don't need anything else. I don't need books with all these foolish conjectures about heaven. I'm not interested in somebody's wild tale tale about something that they said or saw they said that they died and went to heaven. I don't even care if it came from a Baptist preacher. Because I know a lot of Baptist preachers that say foolish things. So that doesn't mean anything to me. So 90 Minutes in Heaven, that's not a book that I would ever buy. I'm not going to go out and spend my money to buy this book, 90 Minutes from Heaven. The only reason I read that, because it was a courtesy to, of a man, to a man that, that came to me that thought he could learn something that he couldn't find out by reading the Bible. So I read it, and I yawned. And I put it back next to Alice in Wonderland on the shelf. And it fits right there between Alice in Wonderland and the Book of Mormon. Right in there in the fairy tale section. So folks, the Bible's all that we need. You don't need to spend your time with other things. And if somebody writes something down to explain the Bible and it, you know, some type of book of commentary or something like that, and it fits, and they can find their remarks to what's already been revealed in the Bible and they're faithful to Scripture, I'll read that. And I can be edified by that. 
but I'm not going to waste my time with all this other junk, and I don't think that you should either. See, if people spent one-tenth of the time reading the Bible as they do things like Your Best Life Now and the Purpose Driven Church and the Left Behind series and all of that, you'd be a whole lot better off just to spend your time reading God's Word. Then you never have to worry about swallowing somebody's fiction because when you read the Bible, you always have the truth. See, the Bible is a mine of information. You're never going to get to the bottom of the Bible. You're never going to understand everything that's there. Every day that you open up the Scriptures, it's fresh and new, and there's something to learn. Now, I think about that as we've been studying the book of Matthew on Sunday mornings. I, I've never, I've taught the book of Matthew a couple of times before, but I've never spent the in-depth study that we've been doing in the book of Matthew. And when I read things there and I, and I learn uh, the reasons behind some of the things that happened and really put all of that together, it still blows my mind. I've been reading the Bible for 50 years, and I still find new things that I didn't know. And you will too if you keep reading the Bible. Don't spend your time on a lot of other junk. Now, I'm not saying, you know, it's a bad thing for you to read anything else at all. Uh, I think that it's good to widen your horizons and all that kind of stuff. But don't read this fiction stuff about the Bible. Don't spend your time with that. It's confusing. In fact, I think that stuff is the devil's work. Jesus said, search the scriptures For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And that's good enough for me. The song, How Firm a Foundation, says, What more can he say than to you who he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? What more can he say? The Word tells us everything that we need to know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what a great privilege it is to open up the scriptures and to read them and, Lord, just to find out these these things that you've written in the Bible that just build us up and give us hope of heaven. And we don't want to look for anything else. We want to look for your word, your truth, what you've said. And that's the most important thing that we can do. Lord, we thank you that there is a place called heaven, that not only have you saved our souls from sin and We don't have to worry about the fires of hell, but there's also this positive outlook of this place called heaven that we'll be able to go to where we can be with you forever. Bless our people, Lord. We thank you for each one who's taken time to come out to hear your word tonight. Keep us safe, Lord, as we leave this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.